Welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle senior political writer, and today we're talking about abortion and how the decision of a conservative judge in Texas just made it harder and more painful for patients everywhere to terminate their pregnancy. Yes, even in California, which has the strongest abortion rights protections in the country. But those state laws don't protect people from a change in federal law, which this judge appointed by former President Donald Trump just made. Here's what happened. On Tuesday, federal judge Matthew Kaczmarek ruled that the Federal Food and Drug Administration improperly approved the abortion pill Mifepristone back in 2000. Typically, Mifepristone has been used in combination with another drug called misoprostol. It was a simple protocol that patients used through 10 weeks of pregnancy. Patients just had to take two pills, something they could do in the privacy of their homes instead of going to a clinic. That's one reason why 53% of abortions are now done this way. But that's going to change. Patients who want to end their pregnancies have to take three or possibly four doses of misoprostol, a drug which can cause severe cramping in some patients. Some providers worry that this side effect may discourage some patients from taking all the doses they need to end their pregnancy. Then there's the political aspect of this. Some abortion rights advocates worry that banning Mifepristone is just another step towards eliminating abortion nationwide. Could outlawing misoprostol be next? What about birth control pills? I have two guests today to help us make sense of this change and to look at what could happen next. Joining me first to explain the medical part of this is Dr. Josie Urbina. She's a San Francisco OBGYN who teaches at UC San Francisco. Later, Minnie Timuraju, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, will return to the podcast to talk about how this changes the national political landscape for abortion rights and what role California will play. First, let's talk with Dr. Josie Urbina. Doctor, first describe what mifepristone does. Mifepristone is one of two drugs used for the current FDA-approved regimen for medication abortion. We also use mifepristone for medical management of miscarriage as well as inducing fetal demises. Those are otherwise known as stillbirths. Numerous studies have proven its safety, and it has been on the market for more than 20 years now. And what is misoprostol? used for? Mesoprostol is a drug that was originally approved for treating gastric ulcers decades ago. Then us in obstetrics and gynecology, we found out that it's pretty effective in helping induce labor. Mm -hmm. We use it in a multitude of settings, such as postpartum hemorrhages. They help us manage that. We also use it for managing retained products of conception. Explain what that is in in layman's terms. Retained products of conception are sometimes when there's like placental bits still left or products of a pregnancy still left in a uterus. Now, after this court ruling, medical providers in this country will only be able to use misoprostol for medication abortions. What are some of the side effects that people typically experience with misoprostol? Well, the biggest, I think, difference is that the protocol that uses misoprostol only is slightly less effective than the one that includes mifepristone. So evidence from a multitude of studies across a range of settings demonstrates that misoprostol alone successfully terminates about 80 to 100 percent of pregnancies without the need for like some type of procedural intervention. And that uh, varies based on how misoprostol is taken, as well as like how far along someone is in pregnancy. With the mifepristone and misoprostol regimen, that is very highly effective, so much so that a person only has to take the mifepristone and then 24 to up to 72 hours later, 
um, they can take the 800 micrograms of mesoprostol. And that regimen alone is up to 98% effective. And typically when it's used in combination with uh, mifepristone, you would take one dose of mifepristone and then within how tell how many hours until you use mesoprostol and it's it was one dose before yeah yeah they can actually some may need to take it up to four times so they would take the mesoprostol 800 micrograms either by putting it under their tongue in their cheek or in their vagina every three hours for up to three or four doses depending on how far along they are in pregnancy so the side effects are similar between mesoprostol alone and the combined mifepristone mesoprostol regimen. It's just that like um, the side effects of mesoprostol alone, they can persist a little bit longer due to the multitude of doses that somebody needs to take and you know how it's delivered. Some of the side effects of mesoprostol include nausea, vomiting, lower abdominal cramping, diarrhea, and fever and chills. What are your concerns if patients now have to take three and possibly four doses of misoprostol now, given some of those side effects that users can experience? Well, my concern is that having to take more than one dose of misoprostol will be detrimental to obtaining a successful abortion. So even after just taking one dose of 800 micrograms of misoprostol is pretty intense. The cramping can be pretty painful and uncomfortable. We usually prescribe pain medication, also anti-nausea medication, and with the diarrhea that it can cause sometimes, sometimes we'll prescribe anti-diarrhea medication. So having to deal with all those side effects for up to four doses is a lot to ask a person to do. So I'm worried that somebody that, you know, was trying to end their pregnancy will give up and not take the remaining doses mm -hmm. in order to for the pregnancy to pass. And that could lead to unnecessary um, procedure interventions or instrumentation of the uterus. In other words, you might have to go into a clinic right. for something that's a little more invasive. You might have to go into like, a, I don't want to say surgery, but what would you call that? I would call it a procedure, a procedural intervention, something that they wanted to avoid altogether by, you know, trying to have the medication abortion in the comfort and privacy of their home. What is your concern about, you know, with this change and what populations of patients could be affected most by this? Well, with any type of access or restriction on access, it's always the most vulnerable and marginalized communities that are affected the most. These are the same communities who have experienced reproductive coercion throughout our history, such as like the forced sterilizations that have happened here in California and most recently, like in the carceral system or the same type of coercion that we see um, with forced hysterectomies and ICE detention, it's always the most vulnerable that end up having to deal with more barriers. As it is, they have a hard time accessing medical care because of you know, the structural racism and oppression that we have in this country. And as opposed to those that have means, such as Caucasian or higher economic status people, well, they'll always find a way around the abortion restrictions within their state. They'll know who to reach out to, and they'll have resources for traveling out of state. But someone who has no insurance or is undocumented or doesn't speak English or is a minority in this country will have a far different experience and will likely have trouble navigating how to get abortion care. Given that patients will now be required to use three and four times as much mesoprostol as before, is there a concern about having enough supply of mesoprostol? Yeah, absolutely. Because of supply and demand, there may be a shortage. And even before mifepristone 
was a target of the anti-choice groups, there would be, you know, shortages of misoprostol every now and then. That, of course, didn't make it into the mainstream media, but was something that we in the medical community were dealing with. Another thing that's very concerning is that, as it is, even though methoprostone hasn't been taken off the market in abortion-restricted states such as Texas, I know my colleagues are encountering pharmacies not wanting to dispense mesoprostol for management of a miscarriage or retained products of a pregnancy because they're afraid that it's already being used for an abortion or termination. And that's simply not, and it's not true. And that's misoprostol that, that they're having trouble, even that which is uh, not even under scrutiny at this point. Yeah, exactly. What are your concerns about where this could lead to? If mifepristone is off the market now, as you say, it provides more barriers for people who are seeking abortions what is your concern about what could be next? It's it's a slippery slope. It's mifepristone this year. Soon after, it's going to be misoprostol. And then after that, it's going to be birth control. And then it's going to be a multitude of restrictions on people's personal liberty and the right to be able to access reproductive health care. The impact of this lawsuit also goes beyond medication abortion access. It threatens the FDA's authority over the drug approval process, which could severely limit the development of new drugs overall. And it can have repercussions on patients' access to FDA-approved medications. Now, I just want to mention that these abortion bans have never been about taking care of people. It's about controlling people's bodies. And to give a prime example of how this is more a race and power issue, Lizelle Herrera, a Latina in Southern Texas, was charged with murder for a self-induced abortion under SB8. And as draconian as it is, that law was intended for citizens to sue abortion providers or those that aid a, pr a procedure. And not for people that are you know, trying to self-manage an abortion. Had she not been a woman or minority, I doubt she would have been treated so harshly. I think it's just a matter of time before things are gonna get out of hand if they haven't already gotten out of hand. You know, people I think are gonna have to die before the general public realizes the extent of um, far-reaching courts. Dr. Bina, thank you so much for being on It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. No problem. Thank you for having me. How does this ruling change access on a national level? After a break, I'll talk with Minnie Timuraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. I spoke with Minnie Timuraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, when she was in San Francisco for a fundraiser last month. We knew this Miffy Pristone case was on the horizon and how it was likely to be decided. We started by talking about how a judge in Texas can totally upend reproductive health access nationally. Oh, by the way, you're going to hear some restaurant noise in the background. We spoke over breakfast. So it's Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Amarillo, Texas, and it's kind of a wild story. Judge Kaczmarek is uh, formerly of the Liberty Institute. He's got a long, long past of being in leadership with extremist organizations. Very conservative, very much affiliated with anti-LGBTQ, anti-abortion, anti-immigration organizations. It's not an accident that he was a Trump appointee. I think it's important to understand, you know, when we talk about presidential uh, candidates and we're going into a presidential cycle very quickly, 
how much of an impact they have on the courts. We think about the Supreme Court all the time, but the the federal court system across the country is important. So that's how we got this really radical judge in Texas and a group of extremist anti-choice organizations created a new organization uh, called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, and they incorporated an Amarillo, even though none of them have any ties to Amarillo, to get in front of this court, to get an outcome in this case. So it just underscores that when our opposition said, you know, their goal was to overturn Roe and then they were done, they weren't telling the truth. They didn't plan to stop with just abortion access. They wanted to go well beyond into birth control and IVF. The case in front of this judge is on the FDA's authorization of Mifepristone, which is one drug in a two-part drug series that is what we call medication abortion. And it is now over 50% of all abortions in the country and a huge benefit to California as your state sees an influx of patients from all over the country and you just don't have enough clinical and surgical centers to cover all of the need of the patients. Mifepristone being the most popular drug. Because this is not an abortion ban per se, we've been calling it a backdoor abortion ban, but because the merits of this case are about the FDA's authorization process and what they did to authorize this drug 20 years ago, it's been on the market for 20 years, safe, legal, safer than Tylenol, it could take Mifepristone off the shelves and halt distribution in California and in other states that have codified protections, blatantly like flying against public sentiment. So what this would do is it just gets to the core of the FDA's authority. What else could be politicized in the medical field that the FDA authorizes? And how? What, what kind of impact does that have on public health across the country? So this case should have everybody paying attention, everybody watching, and it could bring a backdoor abortion ban to the shores of your state, and it could pull this drug off the shelves here in California, and that's terrifying. What more can California and other states that have cast themselves as haven for abortion rights do proactively and aggressively to put pressure on private uh, institutions and government entities to, to allow abortion? What, what more can be done? I want to just underscore that should this Texas case go down the way we think, you could lose access to medication abortion right here in California immediately. So it's not just how does California impact the country, it's how California protects Californians. Tony Atkins and her team were just in Washington, we were talking to them, we're talking to the governor's office, we're talking to the lieutenant governor. I think, you know, there's an immediate plan to shift to a misoprostol protocol. Misoprostol is the other drug in the two-drug protocol, and you can have medication abortion just with miso, but it's challenging, and it's not the preferred protocol by providers, right? Because it's painful and it's difficult. So OBGYNs will tell you, I mean, we can do it, but why should we have to when there is a legally, medically safe drug on the market that would allow us to take care of patients? All right, let's go back to what what can California and and other states do proactively and aggressively to put pressure on... Democratic AGs have weighed in with Judge Kaczmarek aggressively. Um, Rob Bonta has been fantastic working with Tish James in New York. And they are ready to fight and take this thing to the Fifth Circuit. Our hope is in the Fifth Circuit, even though the Fifth Circuit is hostile to reproductive rights, they are not hostile to business interests, which is why it's so important for pharma to get involved in this case. They're very pro-business. And if you make an argument that the FDA being undermined impacts the medical industry and the function of public health in this country... That makes a big difference. So I know that Democratic officeholders across the country are weighing in with business saying, hey, you need to take a bigger stance here. If this thing goes the way we think it will go and it goes to the Fifth Circuit, 
we need the private sector to be aggressively involved in filing amicus briefs and talking about how dangerous this case could be. Because then the next place it would go is the Supreme Court. And this is not a great Supreme Court for us either. So that's number one. I think the Democratic governors and AGs and legislators are doing everything they can to intervene in the case. Number two, they're working very quickly on support here in California for health centers and for access to misoprostol and to other types of, you know, ways to get care, um, to expand access in the state rapidly to make up for the shortfall. But it would be very, very hard. Look, Governor Newsom created this democratic, uh, well, he actually didn't call it democratic. He created an alliance of reproductive freedom governors. And I think it's really important that and smart that he and the other governors did not make it partisan. Even though it's all Democrats, they're keeping the door open for some potential future governor who is, you know, there could be theoretically a Republican governor in the future who could join this alliance. But what they've done is they are working across borders to really collaborate on policy, but also practices and also business, you know, decisions to make sure they're creating a network of states with reproductive freedom protections for patients and providers to get access and to get care and to be free from prosecution. Oh my gosh, can I talk to you about the believability gap that we talked about? I want to say the first time you and I ever spoke, it was pre-Dobbs, right? And I was telling you our biggest challenge was, we know the court's going to overturn Roe. They may not say they're overturning Roe, but it will effectively happen. And our big fight's going to be persuading the American people that it happened. This is a very much a parallel situation. And it's harder because we knew the makeup of the Supreme Court. Most Americans know that there's a Supreme Court. How do I explain this random judge in Amarillo, Texas to the average Californian? And why anyone in California, it seems beyond belief, should be worried about a random extremist judge in Amarillo, Texas? But we should be. You should be. And your, and your office holders are highly concerned and aware and fighting back. Let's talk about another state, Florida. Uh, there, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a likely candidate for president, is uh, backing a six-week abortion ban. He has a, a very friendly uh, Republican-led legislature there, and it's likely to pass. Florida is also one of the nation's largest states. What uh, ripple effect could this have nationally? Florida is a linchpin for access, even though it's a hostile state. And even though it has some sort of abortion ban, it has abortion ban I mean, on the books. Explain what that means, a linchpin for access. Southeast, look at the map. So we were just talking about Illinois. You know, you can't get every type of care you need in, in Florida, but you can get some. There's a 15-week ban. Uh, there is a 15-week ban. Thank you for being more specific. There is a 15-week ban, but a six. So at least now, a 15-week ban is horrific. But if you are in a neighboring state like Georgia with a six-week ban or a state with a total ban or any of the other neighboring deep south states that are extremely conservative, Florida is a place to go. A six-week ban is untenable. A six-week ban is before most people know they're pregnant. So this is Ron DeSantis just, you know, going for the most extreme position he can in anticipation of running for president, out-trumping Trump, if you will, who's actually, after completely gutting the courts and gutting the Supreme Court, is now expressing concerns about how far the party went on abortion, which is highly bizarre. You know, if Florida enacts a six-week ban, it's going to have really, really challenging ramifications throughout the Deep South and the Southeast. Um, you're going to have a whole, you know, geographic region from Texas to Florida with limited to no real access. Couple that with medication abortion, like being taken off the shelves. Medication abortion is most effective early in pregnancy. 
and it's the majority of abortions now, it's going to be a perfect storm of forced birth. The anti-choice extremist movement is newly emboldened by their success, and they are getting more and more aggressive and hostile, threatening doctors, uh, going after folks' licenses, creating a hostile climate. So what I'm hearing is we're seeing fewer and fewer going into this work. Uh, it was already a challenging environment for abortion providers in this country. And now it's become, if I'm in medical school in Texas, how am I even going to get the training to do this work in New York? Right? So I will say it's not surprising, but I'm very, I'm very grateful to the abortion providers who are out there who are taking extraordinary steps to take care of patients. Doctors in Texas are beginning to use code language. Like, I hear it's pleasant this time of year in Colorado. You know, many people who be support abortion rights may be hearing all the stuff, maybe feeling even worse <laughs> yeah. uh, after after this conversation. Certainly, yeah, so I have some over, good news. Over, over the next few months. <laughs> well, what what are you first of all? What are you most concerned about over the next few months? I think we've covered a lot of that. But what also brings you hope? <sighs> what I'm most concerned about is that folks might forget the crisis we're in and might be, may have like bad news fatigue, right? Or and the believability gap challenge we were talking about before. I mean, how could it possibly get any worse? And we might get numb. I look at our friends who are doing incredibly effective work in the gun violence prevention movement, but I also think about how people are beginning to get fatigued and numb to the number of mass shootings. So that is a big concern. We need the American people, the 8 out of 10 Americans who are with us on this issue, to continue to be vigilant and to understand we're in a crisis. But it's also a very long fight. Right? We're talking about a decades-long fight to restore access to abortion as a right in our Constitution and a state-by-state-by-state fight. So we need people to be with us. We need them to be outraged but not fatigued. So the antidote to that is hope. We have 17 states with abortion bans of some shape or form. Not all total bans, but abortion bans. But we also have 17 states that have codified or protected access in some legislative way. So we're one for one right now. And that is an optimistic message. And it's really important going into 2024. But even in 2023, where we have legislative fights in New Jersey and Virginia and Kentucky, where we have a pro-choice Democratic governor in a red state, Andy Bashir, who we have to protect, that we see the contrast between what having a reproductive freedom legislature, governor, and AG can do for your state versus the nightmare on the other side. So we've got to drive that contrast. The good news is that message is effective. It played out for us very well in the midterms, and there's a lot of opportunity on our side to fight back. Many thanks for being thanks, back on Joe. It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. Thanks to Dr. Josie Urbina and Minnie Timuraju for being on the podcast today. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing this episode. Thanks for listening to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission.